Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, the show for business owners looking to acquire, scale, or exit a business. Before we get on with today's program, we just wanted to let you know that the Buy, Grow, Sell team have been working really hard to come up with more resources that add more value to your journey. This includes a range of webinars, tools, and other events, including an online summit where we get some of the industry's leading experts to come and share their insights. If you'd like to know more, go to buygrowsell.com forward slash events. Enjoy the show. You know, as entrepreneurs, I think it's so critical to understand what it is you want to achieve out of your journey. You know, some people want riches, some people want fame, but a different cast of entrepreneurs are, are looking for freedom, the, the freedom to do what they want, when they want. And that doesn't necessarily mean buying Ferraris and uh, flying in private jets. You know, it's this, this ability to wake up, control your time, enjoy some of those little treats here and there that perhaps you, you couldn't afford as a kid, but to be able to control your day-to-day and decide what you're passionate about and what you want to work on. That was really the fundamental driver for my next guest, Nathan Hirsch. He started out as as an entrepreneur at a really young age, grew up in a humble family, understood the value of having to work for a dollar and and that value of that dollar when you want to go and enjoy the things that we want as, as kids and young people. Nathan went on to build numerous businesses, um, one through building e-com through Amazon, but ultimately ended up building a freelancing company called freeup.net. And, and really, it was on the back of his experience building Amazon businesses that he built a, an outsourcing company that focused on e-com and really solving the problems that he had in his original business. That business grew rapidly over a four-year period before he finally exited for a significant uh, figure. You know, in this, in this uh, episode, Nathan shares a lot of his journey and, and how to really approach some of these elements of life and business to make sure that you're actually not just getting financial rewards, but, but real personal intrinsic rewards out of it all. Um, of course, he does touch on some of those key elements around due diligence, how to protect yourself, how to manage earnouts, how to look at some of this stuff for yourself so that you can walk away and feel the sense of celebration that you should really have and that we probably all deserve as entrepreneurs when you close the chapter on a part of your life like that. It's a great episode. I've really got a lot out of it. And he also has some fantastic tips for business owners out there who are thinking about outsourcing and how to do it properly. So tune into the episode, wait to the end and get some of those tips because I think you'll get a lot of value from it. This is Nathan Hirsch. G'day, Nathan. Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited we could finally make it happen. We both rescheduled on each other a few times, so I'm glad we were able to connect. It's, it, <laughs> it makes it all the more worthwhile, buddy. I'm really appreciative that, uh, that you're here and uh, giving me some of your time. So um, now, Nathan, I know you, uh, we're going to have a bit of a chat about, um, well, a number of your businesses and in particular one of them, freeup.net, that, um, that you built and sold. But um, maybe just to sort of warm the audience up a little bit here, maybe you could kick things off and just... Tell us a little bit about your background and kind of what led you to being an entrepreneur. Yeah, so growing up, my parents always made me pay for anything I wanted, whether it was a video game, a car. Uh, so I, I had a job by the time I was like 14, 15. I was an umpire for my town's little league. Uh, I got some internships and I learned a lot just about sales and customer service and managing people. Uh, but I really learned that I hated working for other people. And I kind of got a, a glimpse into what it was like after college. And I wanted no part of it. So when I, I got to college, I started hustling, buying and selling textbooks, uh, competing with the school bookstore, created a little referral program. And before I knew it, there were lines out the door of people trying to sell me their books until I got a cease and desist letter from my college uh, telling me to knock it off. So that was kind of my, my glimpse into being an entrepreneur, like pre-college and, and kind of going into college. But I knew that's what I wanted. Yeah, that's cool. I love it. it uh, I, I had a similar experience buying uh, chocolates and candy and stuff like that at the shops and then being a, being a little uh, junk food dealer in the schoolyard. So it's, um, you know, it's amazing how those things can take off and, and how much people will pay for convenience is what I learned out of all that experience, which was good. But, Absolutely. Um, so tell me though, uh, were you, your business, uh, were your parents 
entrepreneurs? Were they business owners? Like, was there any kind of inkling or guidance from them about leading into business? So my parents are both teachers. My mom did start her own uh, kindergarten and preschool. Uh, it was a nonprofit. So um, I definitely learned a lot from her and my aunt, who was actually just visiting. Uh, she owned a, a company called Print Associates. Uh, so she was an entrepreneur. She was work from home way, 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 way before it was cool to, to work from home. Um, and yeah, she was ru always running a business doing different designs for colleges and sweatshirts and uh, stuff like that. So there were some entrepreneurs around me, but my parents were definitely in the mentality, mentality of go to college, get a real job, have a 401k plan, retire. And I mean, to their credit, that's what they did. Like they, they were teachers. They weren't necessarily high class or uh, upper class, uh, but they saved up and they made a lot of smart decisions when it came to the stock market and they were able to retire at a good age. And now they just travel the world kind of living their life. So that was kind of their mentality on what success is, but I always wanted something different. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I, I love it. I think it's, um, you know, if nothing else, obviously as teachers, you know, they're clearly, they're helping educate their own kids. But I think that that essence of work ethic and valuing a dollar and knowing that you need to pay your own way in life is uh, probably the foundational lessons of the, the, that most people need anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they taught me everything I, I had to know about uh, finance and my grandparents too, like they grew up in the, the Great Depression. So uh, they believed in just saving money, not spending money on things you don't need and kind of preach that whether it was opening up a CD in my name when I was younger or having me do that or whatever it was just kind of teaching me how to be smart with money. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's cool. And and so where did you go from there? I mean, obviously, where you, you um, tell me a little bit about Free Up. When did that start? And how, what was the you know, how old were you? Where were you in your sort of journey? Yeah. So to kind of continue the story, I got that letter from my college and I didn't want to get kicked out of school. My parents were both teachers. That would not have gone over well. Uh, <laughs> so I pivoted. I had this Amazon account. This was 2008, 2009. I was 20. No one knew what Amazon was. There were no conferences, gurus, courses. None of that existed. And I started experimenting and I came up with this idea of drop shipping like years before it was even called drop shipping. The concept of, hey, I don't have any place to put inventory. I don't have money to buy inventory. But all these US manufacturers, they don't know anything about e-commerce. They're just trying to sell their products. So I said, hey, I'm good at selling on Amazon. I'll make a deal with you. You ship products where I tell you to. You keep my credit card on file. You charge me at that point retail prices. Later on, I negotiated that down. Uh, but that was kind of how my, my, my real Amazon business got started. And from there, it was trial and error of what products are easy returns, easy to ship with high margins. And I came across baby products. If you can imagine me as a 20-year-old single college guy with more hair uh, selling millions of dollars of baby products out of my frat house, uh, that was me. And it was a, a wild, crazy ride. I mean, I had no idea um, what being an entrepreneur was, no idea how to hire people. And I just got destroyed my first busy season. I was working 20 hours a, a day. My grade plummeted. My, my social life was gone. And I get to January and I think, okay, I got to start hiring people. So hired my business partner, Connor, who was a completely lucky hire. I didn't even interview him, uh, but it worked out really well. And he loved business and had the same values and complementary skills. But then I just made bad hire after bad hire after bad hire uh, with college kids who were drinking on the job, smoking on the job, focused on school <laughs> besides my business. And that kind of got me into the world of virtual assistants and freelancers because a buddy of mine introduced me to a VA. In my mind, it was kind of a solution to all the, the problems I was having running this e-commerce business without a lot of software back then. So I hired my first VA, learned a lot about hiring VAs, what to do, what not to do. And over, over the next few years, built up the, this army of, of really good VAs. Some were part-time, some were full-time, some were freelancers, project-based. And as Amazon started becoming bigger and bigger and more people became sellers, I started to actually network with other Amazon sellers for the first time. For the first few years, that didn't really exist. No one knew what being an Amazon seller was. And they had all had the exact same hiring problems that, that I had had a few years back. So I started offering them my virtual assistants, my freelancers that I wasn't using. And to kind of put in perspective, we sold $25 million on Amazon over a six, seven-year period. We peaked out at around five, six million, but then Amazon started becoming harder. So one year we would do three, then we do two, then we do 2.5. And it wasn't that fun, exciting business that was just kind of going up like it was the first few years. And meanwhile, this leasing the VAs, for, for lack of a better word, started to really take off. And that was the beginning of Freya. 
Yeah, wow. Wow, that's a really interesting I, – I, I wasn't expecting you to take me on an Amazon route to um, <laughs> to, to a people business. It's um, and, and you're right. I mean, these days there are – I've had guests on this show who have built up and sold quite large Amazon sort of based businesses, which is a, a whole other category of entrepreneurship. I think it's, uh, it's, it's quite an interesting one. Um, it, I, I love that story, part of your story, though, where you, you, you're working 20 hours a week and, or 20 hours a day, sorry, and, and just feeling that sense of overload because I, I think that's something that a lot of business owners can relate to, right? It's, uh, you know, particularly if they're founders, they've had an idea, a bit of a passion, maybe spent the first year or so not even making that much money but just grounded, you know, grind it out till they, they sort of get success. Is there, given all the experience you've had now around this, are there, what sort of advice would you give to business owners about when is a good time to start thinking about getting extra help? So we kind of learned this lesson on the Amazon business. And I think, like you said, a lot of entrepreneurs go through that where you're very passionate about what you're doing. You think you can do it seven days a week forever. And I mean, I actually remember the exact moment. So I was making, uh, I was making a good amount of money as a, probably more money than a college kid should. And my parents told me I should probably pay taxes. So I met with an accountant and he said, when are you going to make your first hire? And I said, why would I do that? Like that's money out of my pocket. They're going to steal my ideas. They're going to hurt my business. They're not going to do as good a job as me. I can do this for, for all, every day forever. And he just laughed in my face and said, you're going <laughs> to learn this lesson on your own. And, and that's when I went through that busy season and got destroyed. So one way... I, or another as an entrepreneur, you're, you're going to get to that point. And I mean, there's very few solo seven figure entrepreneurs out there. It just doesn't exist. You, you got to hire. And I mean, we kind of learned to hire early. It's, it's similar to hiring a bookkeeper. Like you don't wait until you need a bookkeeper. You don't wait until you need someone you hire before that. And that gives you some leeway, some time to train, adjust all of that. So when we started free up, we, we hit the ground running, hiring a few people right from the beginning, um, just to do my in- inbox and customer service and a bookkeeper and stuff to keep Connor, my partner, and I very focused on the high level stuff, the hiring strategy, sales, marketing, research, like all the stuff that you need to be doing in that first year where you're not doing the data entry and answering every email or doing the bookkeeping, stuff like that. So I always try to go earlier rather than, than later. Um, and the beauty of hiring a VA is you don't have to do it full time. Like we started with some people five, 10 hours a week just to give us our time back. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's, it's, I think it's a good lesson given the, the current economic sort of environment. I mean, it's, I, I think over the last sort of number of months, I mean, you know, obviously you're based in the US, I'm in Australia, but, but I think the, the economic narrative is pretty similar in that a lot of people are saying we could be facing a recession, we could be, you know, is there a downturn coming, all this sort of stuff. And I always sort of can't, can't help but chuckle about this sort of stuff because I think half of it is, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, you know, if we all talk about downturns enough, guess what? We get a downturn. But um, I've, I've just sort of found in the, in the last um, six months, I know in our core business, Exit Advisory Group, we've been, we've been hiring. Um, you know, we've, we've hired three new people in the last sort of month, month and a half. And I, I've had a few people say to me, geez, you know, is that a great idea? I mean, like we could be in a downturn, you've got all this extra overhead, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I keep saying to them because I, I, it's just not a logical argument to me. I, I keep saying that we're, we're investing for where we want to be, not where we are today. We're, where we are today, we, we've got that covered. Like we, we understand how to operate in the current condition we are. But if you have goals, you want to go somewhere, you, you have to be thinking about, three steps ahead, not just what's going on around you. And, and don't get me wrong, I mean, you can't be bloody-minded about it. I mean, you, you know, make silly decisions, over-hire, spend money, you know, recklessly. But, you know, I think, I think just tapping into what you were saying there, it's, it is about thinking about what, what does growth look like and, you know, if, what gets you to that next stage is not what got you to where you are today. Yeah. And I mean, a few points off of that, and you nailed it on the head. I mean, if you look at the news for any week, going back the last 50 years, you'll find some experts saying the sky's falling or recession's coming. <laughs> like, it's a terrible, like, you got to just block all that out. It's noise. It could happen, could not happen, but no one can predict the future, no matter how smart, how high up they are. Um, and then, I mean, off of that, like our Amazon business that we started in 2008, 2009, like, that was the last recession. So, just because there, there is a recession, like plenty of businesses succeed or even do better. So you really kind of have to focus on the, the lane you're in and your specific situation. And 
avoid the noise. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be aware of like new competitors coming out or changing the market or AI or, or whatever that is. Um, but you kind of got to ignore the sky is falling, recession is coming, and you can't plan or, or use that to plan anything. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's funny. Like, it's like a friend of mine said to me, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> my general mood and sense of optimism goes up, it goes up exponentially if I just stop watching the news. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, cool. So, so talk to me a little bit about you. you so, you started up uh, free up. Um, you mentioned a business partner before. So, what did that f- sort of early stage look like? Yeah. So, for after we kind of realized the writing was all on the wall for the Amazon business, we were still running it. It was still making us money, but it wasn't like the the good old days of the first four years. And I started really focusing on free up, like ninety five percent of my time. My business partner Connor worked on three different um, businesses, and he was he didn't know what he wanted to do. He was he had a, he, I had him part time on free up. Um, he had his own company, he had another company with a different partner, and we were just kind of we didn't know like what was going to succeed and what was going to fail. But I mean, the early times of free up was a lot of fun because it was our first B two B experience. We got to to land like B2B clients. We had to learn marketing and SEO and having our own website and not have Amazon get us customers and podcasting, going to conferences. So that part of it was just a lot of fun because we could kind of control our own traffic and our own brand and kind of build something that was ours along with the software uh, behind it. And I still remember a, a coffee shop. Connor said, hey, I, I want to meet up with a coffee shop. And I thought he was quitting on me. I thought like one of his other ventures was taking off. I was happy for him. I was like, all right, I'll work on free up on myself. And I told my wife, I was like, hey, I think Connor's quitting on me. And instead he said, hey, man, like free up's crushing it. I love free up. I want to drop the other ventures. Can I work full time with you? And I said, oh, yeah, like, let's let's go for this. So we renegotiated our, our contract. That was easy um, and be- became full time partners. And for the next four years, it was nothing but free up. We didn't brainstorm any other ideas. Our only mission every single week was to, to grow free up. And a lot of just organic marketing, SEO content, partnerships in the space, podcasts, conferences. Like our goal was to be everywhere. And we also kind of started off as a niche. Like we were just for Amazon sellers that first year. It was like, hey, if you want an Amazon VA, now there's a million agencies back there that didn't exist. We were the only people that had Amazon pre-vetted virtual assistants and freelancers. And by year two, we branched out into like Shopify and eBay and other e-commerce. And then by year three and four, we were more into like that marketing, partnering with um, like go high level and stuff like that to um, to kind of get marketing VAs and your writers and stuff like that. So it was kind of a natural progression as we grew. But we really started off in that hardcore niche and we said, hey, we want to be with every e-commerce influencer, get on every e-commerce partner, partner with every single or e-commerce podcast, um, get on every single uh, like partner directory of all the different software companies out there. And by the end of like year one and a half, we were everywhere. Yeah, wow, that's that's fascinating. And and gosh, I've got so many questions coming out of all this. It's um, first one I wanted to ask you. You talked about you're targeting Amazon sellers and and sort of this niche Shopify, etc. I'm, I'm I'm curious. Was the role your VA is playing for these people? like so radically different from other VAs. I guess where I'm going is, you know, we always talk about as entrepreneurs building um, a niche, you know, and, and being able to double down on that because it's a point of differentiation, right? And so w- was the differentiation that radically different or was it was it clever marketing and positioning to be able to just differentiate? Yeah, good question. So I, I in businesses, I like big markets that I can kind of put my spin on it, take my small percentage and also niche to an extent. So our whole thing was, you can go to Upwork, you can go to Fiverr, you'll post a job, you'll get 100 people to apply, you'll go through them one by one. Or with FreeUp, we get 1,000 applicants every week, which is true. We let 1% onto the marketplace, we vet them, and we're very quick to kick anyone off the platform that doesn't give a five-star experience to our clients. So if you go to FreeUp, you create an account for free, no minimums, no maximum, tell us what you need, we'll introduce you, you can get started same day, and you know that if anything goes wrong, we got your back and we're going to make it right at all times. So you kind of focus on saving entrepreneurs time. They know what they're getting. Um, and yeah, and then we had other stuff like an affiliate program to save money or whatever. Um, but that was kind of our unique value prop. And then we also just niched down into the Amazon space. And that was just great timing because it was when like um, amazing and all the different Amazon courses came out and everyone wanted to be an Amazon seller. So you had all these Amazon sellers just crushing it that needed help. And 
and we were like the fastest place to, to get it that we're and we're probably one of the only people at least until year three um that had like very specific hey this person knows amazon ppc this person knows amazon listing and they're pre-vetted and we got your back yeah wow it's it's it is such a specific issue, isn't it? It's just, you know, somebody who has that actual problem, I mean, gosh, it must have been such a relief to actually meet a company that goes, oh, my God, you get it. You actually get it. You've got people specifically trained just for that problem. It's, it's I mean, it's. Uh, I, I experienced that in my own business, you know, and we're saying we want somebody who understands this software and but also has those skills. It's, yeah, I, I think it's a brilliant idea. And, I mean, I think freelancing is certainly nothing new, but that ability to niche down is is huge. Um, right. Yeah, I really love it. Can I pick up on a previous comment you just made when when Connor and you sat down and had that chat, and and you talked about this sort of kind of almost doubling down on free up, and and I and I picked that up because I, I think so many people who'd be listening to this are entrepreneurial, the business owners, you know, and and I think when you are of that kind of background and mindset, it's you see ideas everywhere, right? Opportunities to do different things, whether it's a spin-off from existing products or just completely whole new ideas. How important was it for you and Connor at that sort of stage of your journey to be able to really just double down and focus on on one thing rather than the multitude of businesses? Yeah, I mean, I think that was really key. I mean, I I always ask people over the four years, like, how do you do it if you have multiple companies? And I'm kind of in a spot now where we have three companies for the first time. But there's a caveat, like Outsource School is a membership to our courses. That doesn't take up that much of our time. And we have a team that runs it. And then we have two bookkeeping brands that are basically the same business, just different target markets. So we'll probably add to that too. And I think we're a little bit more veteran and we can hire different upper level people that maybe we wouldn't have been able to before. But at the time, like it was incredibly important to focus on free up. And I mean, I think if either of us were distracted, like I know Connor had his own blog, which he's super passionate about, but he just knew like, hey, I got to pause that if we're going to do what we got to do with, with free up. And I mean, I, I also just couldn't have done it without him. Like he brought so much to the table that I wasn't good at, whether it was SEO or uh, working with our developers, which is my least favorite part of, of business in general. Um, but yeah, just I, I don't think he could have done it without me and I couldn't have done it without him. We just brought a lot of unique skills to the table and, and hyper focus for four years. Yeah, yeah, cool. So, mate, where did you go from there? Like, you you, you started free up. Can you? It, it obviously you had demand, you had your niche, you had a lot of things worked out. What did the first few years look like in terms of your growth and trajectory? Yeah, so we did a million dollars in the first year, five million in the second, nine million in the third, and twelve million in that that last year um, before we sold, and we sold it right at the end of, of the last year. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was kind of it. I mean, to kind of go through it, like the first year we had a minimum viable product of our software that did very little, like clients could see the freelancer in their account and freelancers could log time. And, and that was it. It didn't do anything else. And over time we added like a, a, a signup portal. Like we didn't even have a signup process. Um, then we added like a ticketing system and put in requests and a project board on the back end and an affiliate program in there. Um, and, and everything like, like all these different features that freelancers wanted to to kind of make it easy for them. So that part kind of grew. And like I kind of mentioned, we went Amazon and then Amazon Shopify and then more into the marketing space. Um, and then towards the end, we started doing more like conferences and just kind of networking with different communities there. So um, yeah, that was kind of the, the overall growth trajectory. Yeah, cool. That's not, that's phenomenal growth. I mean, geez, from zero to sort of 12 million over about a four-year period. I mean, that's that's amazing. Clearly, Clearly, it says a lot about the service you guys delivered and the, and the model that you employed. Um, I, I am curious, right? You know, once again, business owners are listening to this, and I think over the last number of years, this idea of outsourcing and freelancing and all the rest of it has continued to grow. Um, you know, certainly, I would say accelerated by the by the pandemic and COVID and all the rest of it. But. When I talk to other business owners, I often find a lot of them have had bad experiences when they do sort of this outsourcing idea. And I'm, I'm, we won't mention other platforms and stuff like that, but there are a few of them out there. And um, this, so recently, as last week, I had somebody say to me, yeah, but every time I go onto that platform, I just don't get what I want or I have a bad experience. And yeah, you know, I guess in my mind, I, I see there's a couple of things like, one, who are you hiring? But two, maybe how are you hiring? And 
Um, I, I guess if you were talking to business owners now and sort of giving some advice on how to find the right kind of people, I mean, are there some core steps or things that people should be doing when they're talking to a freelancer? Yeah, and I also want to add in like free up. We we had no U.S. employees at any point in the four years. Like it was run, we had uh, thousands of people on the platform, but our internal team was thirty full time VAs in the Philippines doing everything from customer service to sales to bookkeeping, like you name it, and all that was done. So it's definitely yeah. possible, and um, and it can be done at a high level. And it's also part of the reason we created Outsource School because it took us a few years into the Amazon business and countless mistakes, mistakes that cost us money and time and frustration. And we got to the point where we're like, we're never going to hire someone again, whatever. And and then we came up with a really good hiring process and kind of the key to it. And what we teach in Outsource School is when you're interviewing, we look for communication, attitude, and experience. And then red flags of what is this person saying that shows they have a bad attitude, they can't communicate, they don't have the right experience. Um, we call that our care process. Um, and then for the part that most people mess up is setting expectations. Like like you said, um, we call it our sick, inter- our sick onboarding method, where before they even start, we go through schedule, we go through common issues that VAs have, like power and internet and personal issues. Um, we go through how the company communicates, how we use email, how we use Slack, how we use Zoom. Um, and then we go through our culture and, and what our culture is, and we make it super clear. We don't work with people that don't fit our culture. So um, and then we give them a chance to to back out if they're not a right fit because we'd much rather they back out. And there's other stuff that goes into managing them and performance reviews and and stuff like that. But if you can't interview and, and you can't onboard something, nothing else really matters. Like most of ninety five percent plus of the mistakes people make, it's because they they didn't do the proper steps in the interviewing and the onboarding process. And almost all the the horror stories and stuff that you read about online can be avoided by by just those two things. Yeah, wow. And and is that the sort of are you it sounds to me like you're still teaching a lot of this stuff and that's that's one of your core your current businesses is that is that right? Yeah, so we don't provide the VAs. We've not compete with FreeUp. We're probably never getting in that space again anyway. Um even yep. if we didn't have that, but I mean with Outdoor School, we just give you our process. Here's the interview questions we ask. Here's how we onboard people. Here are the meetings we run. Here's how to avoid mistakes down the line. Here's how to fire a VA. Um, like all that bonuses and raises, all that stuff is just laid out how we do it. And you can just plug it into your business to, to have a higher um, percent hiring rate. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that's really good. So outsource school. So we're going to put some um, links to that in the show notes. I think, uh, you know, anyone who's a, a business owner running a business right now, I mean, that sounds like an amazing resource. So, um, so. <laughs> Take me back to, to free up again because th- this is a crazy journey. Um, you know, you, clearly you, you had some passion around it. You know, you don't you can't grow a business like that without being excited, and and no doubt those results are exciting on their own. At, at what point in this journey, though, did you start thinking about selling the business? So, I mean, the real the real answer is like going into 2019, we didn't think we were going to unload the thing by the end of the year or anything like that. That wasn't the goal, and we still really liked free up. Like we loved our internal team. It was making a good amount of money, like split between Connor and I, we had no debt, no expenses, um, just completely lean business, just a lot of cash flow. And so we, we kind of knew the business had value and that there was an opportunity there. And this is pre COVID. And we knew the the market or we thought the market was at like an all time high. And we were like, all right, like it, it might not always be at an all time high. So we have to at least consider it. And what one of our and we always build businesses to be sellable in the sense of like operations run without us. It's not one lead channel where like, hey, a Facebook ad stopped working, we don't get customers anymore. Like we were getting customers from a lot of different places. Um and, and we had a good brand at the time, a lot of great reviews, stuff like that. So one of our clients reached out to us uh from the Hoth, Mark Hargrove and David Martin, and they said, Hey, we like free up, we use free up. Um, we want to get into the VA freelancer space. We have a conglomerate of companies, the most known one being the Hoth, but they have a lot of other ones as, as well around that, that that people don't know about. And they, they don't start businesses, they buy businesses. So they wanted to know if they were, were interested, if we were interested in being acquired. And we had a, a good first call with them. Um, they asked a lot about numbers and we knew our numbers very well, which kind of led to us starting a bookkeeping business down the line. Um, but <laughs> fr- from there, we we, we kind of... Did a, I mean, that, from there, they ended up making us an offer that was really good. And we had to weigh a lot of things from the from the market to 
we wanted to take $500,000 from the sale and give it to our team in the Philippines. And we would have felt really bad if we turned down the deal and then something went under. Um, there was also a lot more competition. Like when we started FreeUp, there was no one really doing what we did. By year three and four, there were tons of agencies and different marketplaces popping up. And not that we couldn't compete with them, but it's just more of a challenge. And we had never built a business to 25 million. Like if we were going to go from 12 to 25, we were going to have to make some pretty drastic changes. And they could have gone, they could have gone well, but they also could have not gone well. Or you could have had more revenue, but making less money. Like there, there's so many different things that, that could have gone on there. So we kind of look at it like, hey, we got to make the best decision possible with the information that we have. And it, w- it would have set us up for like financial freedom. So it, and allow us to do other things too. So we ended up accepting like the LOI and from there, the, the due diligence began. And the, the best advice that, that we ever got was to do due diligence on them, just like they were going to do it on us. So they would send us 30 questions a day. We would send 30 questions right back. And that went on for a few weeks. And we wanted to sell it to people that had the same values as us, that what treated people well, that weren't going to hurt our reputation, that were going to pay us every penny, that we didn't want to end up in a lawsuit down the line. Like We wanted to sell it to good, honest people. And they, they passed. They're, they're great people. We have a great relationship with them today. And they honored their word and paid our team and paid us and all of that. Um, but I mean, after the due diligence, then the slow part came when the lawyers got involved, which wasn't necessarily their fault or our fault. Their lawyers are trying to protect them and vice versa. And for us, it's like the biggest moment of our life. But for the lawyers, it's another Tuesday. They, they've got other clients going on. So that took a few months and it was frustrating. And you're waking up every day thinking, hey, the deal could fall through. Like, stay focused on the business. Like, we need a good business to go back to. And that was tough. Connor and I had to keep each other focused. And October ended up being our best month ever in free up before closing in, in early November. So, um, happy to answer any questions off of that. But that was kind of the, how, how yeah, it went down. Yeah. I've, I've got so many questions. Um, <laughs> Look, the first one, I want to go back a little bit to, to this, you know, when you first started exploring the idea of selling. Um, you, you know, I think anyone who's been through this process probably understands that your business probably has two two prices on it, right? One, how the market values it, and two is how you value it. I'm, I'm just wondering if you have any insights on how an entrepreneur can come up with their own number. Yeah, I mean, what we did, we just talked to other people that had sold businesses or, or like you are kind of in that space. And we just kind of got their um, opinion. And, and, and we also kind of knew what we needed to split and be financially free. And, and we knew how much money free up was making. It was extremely profitable. And we were kind of in the position like, hey, we don't have to sell this thing. Like we're, we're completely fine holding it. If, if the right offer comes around and it works, great. If, if not, like we're, we're good. Um, and I think like when I talk to some people now, they're like, oh, I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. It's plateaued. I want to sell it. And that's the absolute wrong time to, to sell the business, as you know. I'm preaching to the choir here. Um, but, but yeah, so that was kind of um, our mentality, at least. Yeah. So, so just picking up on that comment there, but there was a there was an element of this sense of financial freedom for you and Connor that you know, hey, if we get this particular number, we don't have to necessarily work again or something like that. Is that is that really the intrinsic motivator for you? Yeah, and on top of that, like we were willing to take slightly less money to sell it to good people. Like again, we didn't want to make top dollar and then either not get our money on the earnout or end up in a lawsuit or just be arguing for the next few years. Um, and there are other things too. If we were going to sell the company, we wanted to be out and we wanted to be out quick. Like we said, I think we said sixty days or ninety days, but it wasn't even close to that long. Like these people had been here before; they'd done that. They're like, we want to get you out as quick as possible. Like if we have questions, answer them. We were happy to do it, but. Within a few weeks, we were pretty much out of free up. So there, there were wow. other things along those lines. Yeah, cool, cool. It's um, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to business owners, and uh, and I'm always saying to them when they're thinking about their exit, there's a couple of factors um, that they need to explore. You know, obviously money is one. How much money do they need, and why? You know, don't just do a back of the envelope thing and go. I think that number will be fine. You know, give it give it some more thought. Obviously, timing. How long you want to keep doing what you're doing. But the third one being legacy, which is what you just sort of picked up on. And, 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 you know, what do I want to happen after I've left the room? And what do I want for my employees and my team? Or, um, you know, and I was sort of saying to business owners, don't, don't kind of just dismiss that idea. 
because you can find yourself halfway through a deal and uh, and then realize some of that stuff is actually really important to you and it can kind of derail things if you haven't given some thought into how it's going to be managed through a transaction so um, I, I love the fact that you, you're saying you're willing to take a little, take a bit less to make sure that the conditions and the terms were right. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. It's um, it's. Yeah. And we had some non-negotiables, like I mentioned, the five hundred thousand dollars short team. They had to keep everyone on. Um, other stuff like that. We we wanted to make sure people were protected. I think it's sometimes unrealistic for people to be like, like this person's going to keep running it my way, like going forward. Like that's just not going to happen. Um, like you have to know going in that they're going to make business decisions that you are not going to agree with. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. And some of them could be right. Some of them could be wrong. Like we kind of looked at it as like, hey, they, they, have, they have way more experience than we do. Like maybe we're doing some stuff wrong too, but you have to accept that if you're not going to be okay with that. And I think the other thing that entrepreneurs want, and I'll kind of give two stories is everyone wants kind of like that round of applause at the end where you like had that good ending where like everyone's celebrating you. And like, we had a very good ending. Like we, we got, we got our money. We have a good relationship, free up, still running. And that's about as good as it gets. But like my mom ran the nonprofit and towards the end, she was planning on retiring anyway, but she had a falling out with her board of director directors and they eventually cut her off. And she, she like, I don't, I don't want to say bitter because my mom's a very like warm, fuzzy, nice person, but she, it definitely hurts like to work on a company yeah. for 25 years um, and then have that happen. And my aunt, which I mentioned that, that printing company, she was going to, to give it to her employee to run after her. And at the last minute she had spent X amount of time training that person to take over, the employee said she didn't want it anymore. And she ended up selling it to another company who kind of ran into the ground. And so she didn't kind of have that, that ceremonious ending that, that she wanted either. So I would say most of the time it, it does not end up the way you want it to. So you got, well, the legacy thing is great. I, I would definitely weigh the other stuff as well. And to me, it's less about like my name being on something and more about like, again, I, I don't want to spend the next few years arguing with you. Like I want to create a situation where it's a win for you, a win for me, a win for our team, a win for our clients. Everyone's happy and we all move forward. And even if it doesn't work out that way, we all went into it with the right intentions. And we kind of knew going in that like business is hard. Businesses fail. Plans don't always go the way you want it. So there's not going to be like, like grudges um, down the line. Like this didn't happen, but let's say we had an earnout and they COVID like destroyed free up or something. We didn't get our earnout money. Like we wouldn't have hated them. Like they made the, the best decision possible. We made the best decision possible. And so there's other factors too. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's really important is the the, the mindset um, after you've sort of gone through this and how you, you know, I think everybody wants to be able to look back on a chapter of their life and feel confident that hey, there might have been ups and downs, but I'm satisfied with the way I managed things and and what the ultimate outcome was. So yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, just want to pick up on on your mentioned earnout and stuff like that. So, and, you know, we typically see a lot of deals. The, the considerational payments for the company tends to fall in three buckets. You know, you've got your cash, you've got a, maybe a vendor finance component and sometimes an earn out, you know, which is KPI based and whatever else. Did, did you guys, what did your deal look like? Did it, was it split across buckets? Was it, yeah, how, how did it work? Yeah, so with, I'm trying to make sure I don't disclose something I shouldn't disclose. But yeah, um, so we have a, a non-disclosure there. But essentially, it was a, a most of, a lot of the money up front with an earnout. There was no financing. They they did everything in cash. They're kind of like us. Like we don't believe in business loans or anything like that. I'm sure there's smarter people than me that that do. But that's just kind of I like to sleep at night knowing that I don't owe anyone money. Um, yeah, and they're kind of the same way. So that was it. And I mean, we the advice that we also got that I tell other entrepreneurs is. Like, make sure with the, the, you're good with the money up front. Like, the earnout is not guaranteed. They might drive into the ground. Like, you never know. And I don't know how familiar you are with the aggregator space. I'm sure you are. But a lot of those people are, are suffering now because they had very, like, favorable terms towards the aggregators. And those businesses are not doing well. And, and that $10 million deal didn't end up being a really $10 million deal. So that was kind of our advice. So, we were kind of happy with the upfront money. Obviously, we wanted the earnout money too, um, but it was kind of structured where we got a percentage of revenue every month going forward and until we got paid out. And I mean, I, what do you use this? 2023, we sold it until 19. So, I mean, we got our earnout years ago and got every penny. So, it kind of worked out. Yeah, nice. Well, and, and it's nice to hear a story where people have got the earnout. Um, you know, it's it's I've had plenty of guests on this show who, you know, it's the extreme. Some got all of it, some got none of it. Um, I, I even had a, a guest sign who walked away because they just w was the, there was so sort of, there was so much animosity with the buyers 
after the deal was done that they just hated working there and they just said, literally, I walked away from the money because I just didn't want to be there anymore, um, which, yeah, horrible scenario. But um, do, do you have any sort of tips or advice for business owners in terms of how they might look at earnouts or, you know, how to approach that sort of thing? Yeah, so two things that I kind of tell people. Um, one, I and some people are different, but I personally would not want to stick on with another with the buyers like running the company and I'm like working there. And I wanted out. The only situation I was going to sell the company is if I was out. If they wanted me to stay on as a employee making two hundred thousand dollars a year, I, I didn't want that. So and and I told people like I, I had a buddy who sold this company and the agreement was. He had to stay on for three years. And I told him, I was like, you're, you're going to hate that. Like, you're not going to last the three years. And within six months, he was like, dude, this sucks. And he renegotiated with them and, and got out. So, and I'm sure there's stories where it works out well. Um, but for me, like that, that's something that I try to make people aware of. That it's, it, it's way different to be like almost an employee of your company where they're making decisions that you might not agree with. It's way different if you're completely out and like they're running the, the business. Um, and then in terms of the earnout, and this is kind of the advice that I got is, don't make the earnout depend on them hitting like new goals. Like you only get them, let's say you're doing 1 million, you, you get your earnout if they hit 3 million because like the chances of that happening are very small. Instead, the earnout needs to be some kind of base across like the business sticking around. Like if they, if they buy the business and it collapses in three months, then yeah, maybe your business wasn't worth as much as you said it was. But if they're running the business and it's doing the same as you, slightly under, slightly above, you should be on track to get almost all of your earnout. And that's kind of how we framed it, where if the business did better, we'd get our earnout money faster. If the business did worse, we'd still get something. It's not like we would dip down to zero. Um, and, and that's kind of my advice for, for structuring it. Kind of, kind of assume that the business is going to take a hit without you there and make sure you're going to be good with whatever that, that earnout is. And if they succeed and you get your earnout faster, fantastic. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And did I hear you say before? So your earnout was based on mostly on on revenue. Is that is that right? Yeah. So we had a percentage of revenue, and every month we would just get that, and we had like a a set amount for what we could make on earnout. We couldn't make any more than that, and then it was for a period of time. Um, and then if like essentially if the business started doing poorly, we would just run out of time to get the the earnout. And the business did great. We get the the money a lot sooner, which we ended up getting. Yeah, nice. And and I think to, to me, I, whenever I've seen earnouts structured, you know, and they are common, um, it, is this idea of basing it on revenue tends to be, in my view, and maybe I'm a little bit biased because I tend to represent the business owners who are selling. Um, but in my view, re- revenue is a much fairer metric than EBIT or profit, or you know, the the, the amount of times I've seen or heard of out there, um, buyers being a bit cheeky and hitting subsidiaries with corporate charges and management fees. And, yeah, I mean, it's pretty easy to, to manipulate margin, right? But it's um, yeah, but yeah. No, no buyer is ever going to undermine revenue just for the sake of trying to diddle somebody in an earnout, right? <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, profit can be manipulated. I would never do an earnout based on, on profit. You need something that, that can't be manipulated and revenue is just pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah, nice. So, um. I want to get on to in a second what, what you're doing these days, and obviously you've touched on it with outsourcing, but um, my final sort of just question around that particular deal, once it was done, did you celebrate? Did you buy a trophy? Did you, you know, how did you kind of close off that chapter? Yeah, so Connor, the, I was living in Orlando. Connor was in Denver. They live in Tampa. Connor flew out. We took a drive down to Tampa, met them in their office signed the paperwork, got wired the money. And and then the hard part came. We had to tell our team because our deal throughout the whole thing is you can't talk to our team. Our team can't know about it. We wanted to keep them away. And and so it was. It, we had people like Chicky Ann, who's one of my favorite people in the world out in the Philippines, who I'd worked with for 10 years. Like that was tough. And we, I mentioned we took the money. So we told them like how much they were getting and they were super thankful. We had to tell them a hundred times their job was secure. Um, and, and that was part of it too. And it was emotional. It was rough, like telling these 30 people. And once we told them and we kind of let it sink in, that we had a chance to breathe and, and celebrate. And that ride home was um, pretty fun. And I just, we have this video of us walking to the condo and my wife's in there. And we're just like, woo, let's go. Um, <laughs> and, and all of that. And I mean, it was all the, the real plan was to travel the world for the next year. And I didn't think I would see Connor. Uh, COVID hit a few months later, which was like a weird place to be. We had to 
cancel all our travel plans. And um, I mean, Connor and I were both kind of the same minded people. We didn't go out and buy a Ferrari. I bought a house in Denver. I ended up convincing my wife and uh, family to move here. Um, and yeah, we became foster parents. Like most of the money's in the S&P 500 and like the stock market. Like, I don't know. And we, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, but I'm not trying to be like stupid about it. And, and that's kind of just our value in life. Like a lot of things that, that people value, I don't necessarily value. Like I buy all my clothes at Goodwill. Like I don't care what I look like. Clothes is, is, is zero factor in my life whatsoever. I'm not trying to impress anyone or look good for anyone unless it's like a wedding or a funeral or something. So that's just kind of my overall mentality on life. I think it's cool. And 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 it's, you know, that, that sense of, of financial freedom, as you say, I mean, it's to be able to just live your life and, and make choices about what you want to do and, and have those options. I think, you know, options and choices in life is probably the most powerful thing that any of us can have. So. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it allows us to start other businesses that are no stress. I mean, business is hard. Most businesses fail, as you know. So you kind of have to know that going in. And it's a lot easier coming off an exit and being like, hey, we're going to try this. We're going to put some money into this. We're going to um, try this for six months than it is when that's your full-time job and your family depends on you. And if it goes down, you have to get a real job or you don't have a backup plan. So it's a much different position to build businesses. And it just makes it a lot of fun. Like Connor and I, Connor and I have had ups and downs over the past few years, but it's nothing like the the Amazon business and the free app just kind of, you kind of have already gone through that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. So Nathan, you moved on, you have options, you've got a choice. So you, you obviously have launched into some new businesses. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing today. Yeah. So I mentioned when COVID hit, we were kind of stuck inside and we didn't really have any new business ideas because at the time, FreeUp was all we thought about for four years. Um, a buddy of mine said, hey, what if you launched a hiring course? And we ran it by the buyers. They were cool with it. And uh, we launched Outsource School. And like all of our companies, <clears throat> we didn't know if people were going to like it or hate it. And we kind of launched it and said, hey, if people hate it, we'll just refund everyone and move on to something else. And People really liked it, and we turned it into uh, our yearly membership that we still run today, and it's become a nice passive income stream, and a lot of people really like it, and they kind of use it to hire great people, and it's awesome to see the reviews. And then we spent the next year, two years, just brainstorming a lot of bad business ideas before coming across uh, bookkeeping, and we we kind of we like big markets, we like boring businesses, we like things that apply to what we did before, and I mean, hiring was a big part of free up, but the best hire we ever made was a bookkeeper from day one. With our with our Amazon business, we were always behind. With Free Up, we got started from the first day, and when we went to sell Free Up, we had four years going back to day one of Immaculate Books, and that helped us pass due diligence. So, we did a lot of market research. Uh, we launched Ecom Balance, our monthly bookkeeping service for e-commerce sellers, and more recently, the sister brand Accounts Balance, which is for other online businesses, services, agencies, SaaS stuff like that. So. Um, yeah, simple, boring, but I think we're, um, we, we like that we're not bookkeepers and we can kind of bring the entrepreneur mentality where we're good at hiring, we're good at scaling, we're good at SEO, we're good at process and customer service and kind of bring that mentality to, to bookkeeping. Yeah, I love it. I think that's cool. And, and you know, I just, once again, pick up on something you just said then is, is I, I love the fact that you guys sat around and explored some bad ideas. Like it's, it's I think it's so easy with, these days, podcasts, social media, et cetera, um, it, it almost looks like, you know, people are always put up as this amazing success story, you know, like it's, or as, as, a, as a friend of mine said to me, it's all this Instagrammable bullshit, you know, <laughs> like, hey, we just added water and shook it up and presto, we've got a successful entrepreneur. Like, like it, it's not like that in the real world. And I, I just, you know, I love the fact that you guys sat around and went, yeah, you know what, some of these ideas suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's part of it. Like you you fail a lot. Like there there's so many like we had a story with our Amazon business where we had one supplier we were crushing it with. They were 95% of our sales and one day they dropped us and we had to start all over again. Like we've got so many horror stories like that that you almost kind of become numb to it and we kind of go in like even starting this bookkeeping business we're like, "Hey, like businesses fail. Like this is not a sure thing. We're going to try it for a little bit. And if it fails, we got to scrap it and start over with something else. And I think sometimes people get too in love with their business. They're like, I love baking. I have to have this bakery. If it doesn't work out, my life's over. And that's just a, a terrible way to approach business. And you got to do market research. You got to 
find your ideal customer. You got to find out if there's a market, if there's a margin um, and all of that. And you kind of got to, you got to be look for all the ways that it can fail instead of all the ways that, that it can succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Great advice. Um, Nathan, I'm appreciative of you coming on the show and sharing your story with us. It's, um, it's, it's been fascinating and I just, you know, you've, you've had some wonderful successes and you're obviously out there, you know, applying all this and doing great work for other business owners again. So, um, Matt, my, my final question is, if I could, given your journey, where you've been, what you've done, how do you personally define success? Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I, I always, so you kind of asked me why I became an entrepreneur and it all kind of started my, I would go skiing with my parents and I went to school with a lot of friends. I had parents who were like doctors, lawyers, dentists, like very wealthy and I was middle class. And at lunch, they all got to buy French fries and I could never buy the French fries unless I bought them myself. My parents would not let me buy the $8 French fries they had um, in the ski resorts. And so I was like, when I'm older, I want the option of buying French fries. Like I want to be able to buy things that, that I want and, and do whatever I want. And like, I'm unique. I'm weird. Just like everyone else. Like I got things I like that people don't like and, and vice versa. So I just want to be able to live life and give back and um, just be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want and build businesses. It's fun. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Freedom in a word is freedom, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's cool. Nathan, thank you so much for coming on the show, buddy. Um, I, I, I'm going to share some links to your, your current businesses into the show notes. And um, um, but, but if anybody's listening right now and sort of wants to reach out to you and engage in some way, are you, are you happy for people to reach out? And, and if so, like what's, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, yeah. connect with me on, on LinkedIn. Uh, Nathan Hirsch, I post content every day uh, about the boring parts of businesses, hiring, bookkeeping systems, processes. And uh, feel free to shoot me an email, nathan at econbalance.com. Um, if you are checking out outsource school or econ balance or account balance, make sure you mention this podcast. My team will hook you up with some deals. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for for having me on. No, I appreciate it, Nathan. And I'll tell you what, the outsource school, I'm going to be sharing that with my own team because, you know, we, we've got a team in the Philippines. We've got a team. We're always outsourcing to different contractors for different things. So it sounds like a, a resource that we can use. So, you know, we'll certainly be in touch on that. Um, mate, thank you again for your time. It's been wonderful. Uh, and for all of those listening to this episode, thanks for joining us again. Uh, we hope you got as much out of this episode as I did. And, uh, and please reach out to Nathan and have a chat if you, uh, if you need their businesses or any of their services. Thanks for listening. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Wherever you are on your business journey, it's worth understanding what is driving value into your business and what could be holding you back. For more information, speak to the team at Exit Advisory Group by going to exitadvisory.com.au or send an email to ask at exitadvisory.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.